Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Jason Brown. For those of you that are not familiar with me, I'm not normally up here. I'm going to be filling in for Kyle this week and next week as well while he and Lindsay are out of town. And it really is uh, just a pleasure to be filling in this morning. Um, it's an opportunity that I have on occasion, and I, I just thank you for that opportunity. Back in February, I had the opportunity to preach through um, Nahum chapter 1, um, which was honestly probably too much for a single Sunday morning, but alas, it happened. Um, and then back in, I guess it was July, I had the opportunity to preach through the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, and then praying over these two weeks, uh, trying to decide where to go next, um, ended up on picking back up in the book of Nahum with chapter 2 this week, and then we'll try to cover chapter 3 next week. Um, so go ahead and turn to Nahum chapter 2. If you can't find it, you can use the table of contents. You are welcome to use the pew Bible, ch chair Bible, thing Bible um, that is under the chair in front of you. And it is on page 782 to give you a, a shortcut. But a little intro before we read our passage this morning. Um, to kind of set the tone for Nahum, since it's been a long time since we were in this book, and most of you are probably not super familiar with this book. Um, first of all, Nahum is a book of poetry. Even its most harsh critics, critics recognize its literary brilliance, and it uses a lot of poetic devices that can be easily missed or misunderstood, such as brevity and repetition and a lot of wordplay, a lot of allusions to other prophets and psalms and other scriptures, to Assyrian theology and um, Assyrian culture. Second is that Nahum is a graphic description of God pouring out his wrath on the Assyrian capital, Nineveh. And third, our context for this morning in chapter 2 comes right after chapter 1, um, which when we looked at this before, we looked at how seriously God takes sin. His wrath is not to be overlooked, not to be downplayed or hyperbolized. And two, sin is not just an issue for Nineveh. Nahum is talking about God's judgment in chapter 1 um, coming to Assyria, but he does so in a way that's pointing fingers back at Judah's sinful state, such as reminding them of their idolatry of the golden calf, um, their rebellion in the wilderness, and other things like that. In chapter 1, though, it's not all bad. Um, Nahum reminds us that God is good and a refuge, and that he will restore his people and rescue them, not just from physical enemies, but from spiritual enemies as well. So, if you would, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. We will read Nahum chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 which is the entirety of chapter 2. <clears throat> the scatterer has come upon you. Man the ramparts, watch the road. Dress for battle, collect your strength. The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. The plun for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them, and cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. 
They gleam like torches and they dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened and the palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! they cry, but none turn back. Plunder the silver and plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. Desolate! Desolation and ruin! Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of young lions where the lion and lioness went? Where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the swords shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, chapter 1 sets kind of the theological theme for this book. Um, And it's something that's still applicable today, which is why we're looking at this and why it's included in the Bible. Um, Chapter 1, verse 1 introduces this as the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Nahum means comfort, and Elkosh means God is severe. God is both severe and compassionate. In chapter 2, where we find ourselves this morning, the emphasis is on God's severity. Nahum is prophesying the brutal downfall of Nineveh. Verses 3 through 10 provide this vivid narrative of the events that take place during the siege and fall of Nineveh. It gives us this first-person account as if it's happening in real time, even though it's a prophecy of something that hasn't happened yet. So it's a prophetic present tense, if you will. Understand, though, that at this time, the idea of someone defeating Nineveh was unthinkable. It was the stronghold of the fiercest warriors of the day by far, and it had been fortified and enriched for hundreds of years. Jonah 3.3 tells us, and this was a generation or so more prior to this, he says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, and it had only continued to prosper and grow since then. Gregory Cook describes how the plunder and tribute from conquered and subjugated foes had streamed into the city year after year, and that they had used slaves and money and material from pillaged nations to expand, embellish, and fortify Nineveh. Nineveh was an almost impregnable fortress. On low hills surrounding three sides of the city, forts guarded the approaches to the metropolis, while the Tigris River flowed on the west. Beyond the massive city walls, it was guarded by a system of moats and canals. And beyond the latter, 
outworks were added for even further defenses. More importantly, in Nahum's time, the Assyrian military did not need walls. No force had withstood them for 100 years. Who could come up against Nineveh and not only survive, but scatter and destroy the city? Nineveh was the unsinkable Titanic of its day. But we see here that God is going to send an iceberg. Imagine the shock of somebody reading this, especially if this is a letter that's written to Nineveh. If someone there picks up this letter and reads it, they're like, this is ridiculous. This guy's writing some graphic poem that's crazy. There's going to be skeptics, disbelief, probably some mocking, and some people that are just like, he's crazy. Now, as we read into it, there's kind of a few ways to understand this poetry, uh, because Nahum's really, really good at using unclear pronouns. Um, Lots of he's and she's and they's and who is he talking about? Uh, So we're going to take a look. There are some parts in this narrative where it appears to be describing the oncoming Babylonian army, There's other parts that are describing the Assyrian army um, as they fail to defend. And then some of them could go either way and are perhaps intentionally done that way to represent both. Um, So looking in verse 3, you see the, the appearance and the introduction of the Babylonian invaders in their army. Talking about the brilliance of the flashing metal on the Babylonian chariots, a well polished chariot. Um, In our day, we might call it a well-oiled machine. They are ready for war. This stands in contrast to the chaotic scene of the Assyrian chariots that are racing to and fro in chaos in verse 4. This unorganized chaos that ultimately ends with the chariots in smoke and ruin in verse 13. Verse 4 could also be describing the chaos that's just felt once the invaders break through the city walls and they swiftly take over the city. Um, But either way, what you see here is that the military pride of Assyria, which had been their chariots, is now dashed to pieces. It is in smoke and ruin. Their warrior religious system has failed them. In verse 4, the word there in Hebrew that's translated in ESV as race madly for the chariots could literally mean boast. Their chariots are boasting around in chaos because they used to boast in their chariots. That was what made the Assyrian army so formidable is their use of an adaptation to chariots better than and before all the surrounding nations. And now their boast is in chaos. And the enemy stands at their gate better prepared and they are out there shaking their spears at them. It is a visual to behold. And then he gets into the shields and their clothes are red. This vivid mental picture of the scale of bloodshed. Blood flowed freely. The slashing and stabbing sent blood into the air, covering shields and swords and shirts, and everything was red. But also, Nahum's telling them in this exactly who's going to be invading. By describing their clothes and their shields as red, Nahum's saying, it's going to be Babylon. They are coming for you. Ezekiel 23 
is describing the idolatrous lusting of Israel and Judah, and it identifies that the Assyrian army wore purple, whereas the Babylonian army wore vermilion or red. So we know that it's the Babylonian army, and when we talk about Babylonians, you'll see reference to the Chaldeans, the, the Medes, and then later on in the Bible, the Persians. Those are all kind of the similar empire through different stages. Um, but here we'll, we'll talk about it in Babylonian terms. <clears throat> um, in verse 5, you see that the king of Assyria is having a really awful day. He remembers his officers. That's great. Or he calls upon his officers. But they stumble as they go. They get to the wall quickly. They hasten to the wall. But it's too late. The siege tower is already set up. His most choice troops, his special operations forces, the Navy SEALs of the day are tripping over themselves. And they get to the wall too late. Babylon's siege towers are there ready to come at them. In verse 6, we see that the city falls. Now, history records that some unusual event caused the Tigris River to breach the city walls of Nineveh during the siege in 612 B.C. We don't know exactly what happened. Was it a timely flood? Possibly. A couple generations before, King Sennacherib had previously recorded multiple complaints about how the floodwaters, when the rivers would rise, would undermine the structural stability of the walls and uh, buildings within the city. So perhaps it was a flood. Perhaps, maybe, the Babylonian army was very smart, and they went upstream and they destroyed the dams and locks that Assyria had built to control the water flow around the city and their elaborate system of canals. Perhaps these are the river gates that are opened. But then again, each of the 15 city walls were also called the river gates because every single gate in the city wall um, opened to either a river or a canal. So it was the great city gates or the river gates of the city. But either way, what we do know is that multiple historical records confirm water caused part of the wall to collapse. Nahum confirms this here, and also in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. The walls are breached, and the palace melts away. What this means is it literally means it's dissolved by water. The great stronghold melts away. The Ninevites are like the foolish man in Matthew chapter 7 who builds his house on sand and it is washed away in water. With the city walls breached and the army in chaos, the city falls. It's humiliated with nakedness and the moans and laments sound like doves cooing. Just imagine the sight that you would see. Red everywhere and just this background noise of people moaning that sound like doves or pigeons just making noise. I won't try to imitate that. He <laughs> um, goes on to describe that Nineveh is like a pool that's full of holes. They can't hold water anymore. People abandon the city. They stream out of it. And as they do, they leave generations of the spoils of war ripe for plunder. Unimaginable riches. 
Though the city had been built with the best materials, they washed away like sand because they lacked a sure foundation of worshiping the one true God. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and attempt a uh, sports analogy. (laughs) So we'll see how this goes. I mean, I have teams that I like and stuff. I'm just never been a fanatic, and I'm not naturally inclined for any sort of athletic ability. Um, But even the most disinterested in sports person, you've probably seen a sports movie. You know, the substitute teacher would put it on in class in school. You've probably seen something. In most sports movies, they tell the inspiring story, this emotional story of an underdog who comes in and beats the powerhouse team. But in real sports, the halls of fame, the record books, everything that you look at in the history of sports, it records the stories of the powerhouses and the dynasty teams. See, they don't have to rely on some trick play at the last second. They have the sheer talent and ability to steamroll over lesser teams. They don't surprise you when they show up. You know exactly what you are up against. These are the teams that have the staying force, and that are dominant season after season. What's ironic here is that Assyria and Nineveh, in their context, were the powerhouse dynasty. And you could argue that compared to them, their conquerors were the underdog. So maybe we should make a movie about how the Babylonian invaders, they worked harder, they planned better, maybe they used a flood to their advantage or caused a flood, um, how they surprised Assyria. Um, and how, you know, they worked really hard and they, be- they became the new kids on the block, right? That'd be a fun movie. Sell a few tickets. I'd go see it, maybe. Well, I'll probably wait till it comes out on streaming, but, you know. But Nahum, he tells a different story. He says that God is the central force in the downfall of Nineveh. What's more, God doesn't need to rely on a trick play or a surprise attack. He doesn't need to bring in a ringer. Instead, he sends in a prophet. And the prophet tells them exactly what's coming, who's coming, and he says, be prepared. In verse 1, God calls on Nineveh through Nahum. He says, man the ramparts, watch the roads, dress for battle, collect your strength. God is saying, make sure you have your soldiers up on those fortifications. Make sure that they are ready to defend and that they are on watch for the coming invader. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be Babylon. Get your armor ready. Gird up your loins. Sharpen your swords. Fasten your helmet. Gather your strength. You're going to need it. Get your best ready. Come at me, bro. Hit me with your best shot. I can take it. See, God is the true powerhouse on the world stage. You know exactly what you are going to get. Not long after Nahum's prophecy, the destruction of Nineveh comes true just as God said it would. This demonstrates that God is in control of the events of the future and that even the strongest powers of this world give an advance notice to get ready still can't stand against his power. Assyria had swept 
through its enemies with overwhelming speed, force, and violence. And God deals with them in kind. The great reversal of fates. Verse 10, it relays the feeling of this devastation. Desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish is in all the loins. All faces grow pale. The great Nineveh has been brought low. You can feel the anguish in this passage. Nahum is shouting their desolation. And in true Nahum fashion, he caps it off with a song to taunt them and kick them while they're down, if you will. Verse 11 and 12 kind of change to this metaphor that's possibly in song form. Uh, Perhaps he took a common song and he changed it a little bit to mock them in their destruction. And then this is capped off with a final decree of judgment against the city and her rulers in verse 13. This metaphor in 11 and 12 introduces lions into the conversation, a reference to Assyria and her rulers. Like a lion, Assyria was the apex predator of her day, and they used this symbology very prominently. Uh, The Assyrian kings boasted of their physical prowess by telling these grand stories of their lion-hunting exploits. They would take the slain lions and strap them to the front of their chariot and parade around the city for prestige and to mark themselves as the protectors of the people. Now, the current king... King Ashurbanipal had capitalized on this ideology, and he had filled his palace with carvings depicting his lion hunts. The lion's den is gone. That palace that's full of carvings has melted away. This warrior's safe haven of the city of Nineveh with none to disturb is highly disturbed. The Assyrians had torn and strangled their enemies, bringing captives back home for public tearings of flesh. But Nahum now flips this around, and he paints the Ninevites as the creatures. King Ashurbanipal is nothing more than a beast being driven by his passions. He is no longer the protector of his people, but a wild animal who devours them. So how does all this fit together? Does this ancient narrative mean anything to us today? I mean, we're not Assyrians, we're not Judeans, and Nineveh has long been gone. But look back at the beginning of verse 1 and we see something. It says that the scatterer has come. The word here that's translated as the scatterer is used 67 times in the Old Testament. And the vast majority of the times that it's used, it is used as an expression of God's judgment and an expression of God's wrath, scattering either his people into exile or scattering their enemies in defeat. See, scattering is a consistent theme throughout the Old Testament of God's active wrath. And the first mention of this word being used like this that sets the tone for how we understand what is happening in the scattering comes from Genesis chapter 11 in the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, for me, reading, picking back up in chapter 2 and reading this and making that connection was pretty profound. 
Because I had preached Nahum chapter 1 earlier this year, and then Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. And when Kyle asked me to do it again, I picked back up with chapter 2, and I was like, why didn't I just pick up with chapter 2 before? I'd already done all this work to understand what's going on in the book of Nahum, and then when I picked it back up again this time, I realized it's because Nahum chapter 2 has to be read in light of Babel and the scattering that takes place in Genesis chapter 11. Understanding what God did in the dispersion, the word that's translated in English there, scattering, same word, um, at Babel, explains what he's doing here. Nineveh and Babel had ancient ties. If you look at Genesis chapter 10, in the story, the description of the descendants of Noah, this passage called the Table of Nations, um, speaking of Nimrod, who is probably the uh, great-grandson of Noah, verse 8 says that Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first man, or the first on earth to be a mighty man. Down in verse 10, it says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh and a bunch of other cities. Babel and Nineveh are sister cities. And we see in chapter 11 of Genesis that Babel was dispersed or scattered because of their city building and their name seeking. It represented their corrupted view of God. It was twisted beyond recognition. They had lost any realistic sense of who God is. And the same is true for Assyria. As Kyle has recently led us through Romans chapter 1, it talks about how they had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And they had exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. In Babel, this led them to believe that they were in control and they didn't need to follow God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And here again, we see that the Assyrians have this greatly distorted view of God with a religious system that is built on violence and conquering. Verse 13's proclamation of judgment um, also says that the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. 2 Kings chapter 18 relates this telling story of this Assyrian Rabshakeh, this messenger, and it gives us a really good picture of their distorted view of God. During the reign of Hezekiah in Jerusalem, Assyria had laid siege to the city. He taunted Jerusalem, um, telling them not to trust God, because he thought that God was to be worshipped up on the high places like all the Canaanite false gods. He tried to bribe the residents of Jerusalem, and he boasts of Assyria's military prowess. How can your God stand up against our military? Our military is way better than your God. He said that the siege would last until the Jews had to eat their dung and drink their urine. He was not a nice man. But he said, unless you accept this deal, if you do accept this deal, we'll, we'll be done. We'll leave you. We'll, we're all good. But unless you accept this deal um, with the king of Assyria, um, we will continue to destroy this city. Now, the deal with Assyria would have involved covenanting with their god, Asher. 
the Rabshakeh goes on to say, like, how could you withstand? No other God has. The idea of this is completely foreign. What are you thinking, you Jews, hiding behind your walls, thinking your God will save you? And he goes on to say, well, Assyria, we believe in the Israelite God. And you know what? Yahweh told me to come here and destroy you. Their view of God was messed up. What they had likely done is taken God, taken Yahweh, and added him to their pantheon, added him to the multiple um, host of gods that they worshipped, all of which were subject to their kind of over-god of Asher. It's amazing when you have this false view of God, he tells you exactly what you want to hear. Of course this type of God, this view of Yahweh, is going to tell you, you will be victorious, you will go up to Jerusalem, and you will take that city. And of course, as he was doing this, this messenger was doing it in Hebrew so that all could hear his message and his mocking of God. Assyria had a greatly distorted view of God. And so here again, we see God step in and scatter. But why all of this destruction? Verse 2 gives us some more clues into this. It says, the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob and the majesty of Israel. Assyria's worship was corrupted. And at the time, Judah's worship was corrupted under King Manasseh, who had come after Hezekiah. And he was one of Judah's worst kings. He is described as being more evil than the nations the Lord had driven out and destroyed during the Canaanite conquest. He sacrificed his son. He rebuilt all the high places for worshiping the Canaanite gods that Hezekiah had removed. Um, he followed the worst of the northern kingdom of Israel that at this time had already been taken into their exile um, by Assyria. He followed the worst of the Canaanites. This guy was just a really bad leader, leading Judah astray. And it's believed, though, that he did actually go back to Assyria and make a deal with them to become a vassal state of Assyria, which shows that he was turning to Assyria for salvation instead of God, and he was covenanting with their gods. This majesty of Jacob and Israel was that they had worshipped the one true God, Yahweh. So we see that God here has a purpose to his scattering. You see this um, reflected perhaps most prominently in the exile of Judah that comes after this as God purifies them and refines them to um, end their Canaanite-based idolatry. You see this in the scattering at the beginning of Genesis of being fruitful and multiply to fill the earth. God's purposeful in his scatterings, and you see that too in the New Testament as a scattering of the early church after the persecution under the Jews builds up that church, and takes the good news of Jesus throughout all the land. In this case, we see that God's scattering here has the purpose of working out his judgment and promised wrath on Assyria for his honor and his glory. It protects his people as well by eliminating their enemy and their oppressor, and it sets the world free from the oppression of Assyria and from their false religion. 
And we also see that in this scattering that God is building up his people. The riches that were taken from Nineveh went to Babylon. And after Judah's own scattering during the, the Babylonian exile, then you see um, Babylonian to Persian rule that the Persians fund the remnant of God's people to return and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, perhaps using plunder that they had gotten from the city of Nineveh. See, God had sent uh, Jonah before, and the people had repented. Nineveh was like, oh yes, absolutely, we repent in sackcloth and ashes. But it didn't stick. And God's wrath burned against their leaders and the systems that enabled idolatry. By scattering Nineveh, God has defeated their leaders who led them back into sin. And God has shown power over their god, Asher, and gave a chance for his, the people of Assyria to find him in the midst of their dispersion. No other nation ever worshipped Asher again. He was completely defeated. Micah chapter 5 prophesies of Assyria during that siege uh, in the age of Hezekiah that we talked about earlier, that God will rise up for them new leaders, new shepherds, and they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrians. This is what we see happening in Nahum chapter 2. And Nahum does even more with this idea of scattering. He identifies this act of judgment and wrath by a person, the scatterer. He is identifying that God is the active agent in the events that transpired at Nineveh. Just like at Babel, just like in the Israelite exile, and still today, God is the active agent. But that's probably not what we think about when we think about today, right? You know, you, you turn on the news, you open your news app, you look at Facebook, whatever it is you look at to get status updates of the world, you see that there's war in Ukraine, there's the Israel and Hamas conflict, um, there are attacks all throughout the Middle East, mass shootings, there's death, human rights abuses around the world, there's homelessness, abortion, political chaos, sickness, divorce, decay, drugs, lies, depression, suicide, rivalry, hopelessness, poverty, fraud, loneliness, heartbreak, you name it. Do you feel the weight of sin in this world today? When I first put this list together, I was thinking about it earlier this week. I put mass shootings and I thought, wow, it is so sad that that is something that comes to my mind first. And at the time, I was not aware of any recent mass shootings, like immediately recent. The very next day, headlines carried the stories of Lewiston, Maine. 18 killed, plus the shooter who now they say probably committed suicide, and many more are wounded. Some, I believe, are still in critical condition. We are surrounded by sin and the effects of sin. Do you feel it? And then when we spend time in Romans um, like we have recently in passages like Romans 1.8, which says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. We think about wrath and then we look at our world and we're like, well, 
I don't know. I mean, the wrath against the Assyrians seems a little bit harsh. And if you look at that and apply it to today, I mean, there's so much sin. If God were to just come in and destroy an entire country or wipe out a city with a flood, like, wouldn't that be too much? I mean, after all, wrath is really just an Old Testament thing, right? No. We believe in theory that God's wrath and justice have power, but we're not sure what to do with that. And in reality, we often emphasize only that God is slow to anger and full of grace, abounding in steadfast love. And that, that is absolutely and thankfully and necessarily true. Amen. But sometimes it can leave us forgetting the power behind God's wrath, behind God's jealousy and his sovereignty. When we are so surrounded by sin, it can feel hopeless. It can feel like sin is winning, like God is falling behind or unable to slow the spread of sin. How could God possibly overcome and resolve the mess and the prevalence of sin that we see in our world today? If he could do something, why hasn't he yet? It's really bad out there. We read about his wrath and his judgment, but we don't see it. Nahum shows us that God does have the power to do so, and he does do so. Chapter 2 is a demonstration of God's power. He keeps his promises, both of salvation and his promises of condemnation. We know that God has promised that he will by no means clear the guilty, and he has the power to hold them accountable and to deliver punishment. We know that Christ has defeated sin on the cross and, cross and has promised to ultimately deliver his people from its influence and restore creation, and he has the power to do so. But maybe you're thinking, well, God is slow to anger, so maybe he's just kind of resting inactive until the end times, right? Well, Nahum demonstrates because of the short time between his prophecy and how it came true, he demonstrates that God is in control of the near term, not just the far-off future. It's important, too, to remember that God's wrath is his action, not ours. But in that, just because it's not our place to enact his wrath, it doesn't mean that it isn't still true or that it won't happen. And it's not just the sin in this world, but also the sin in our lives. Do you feel its weight? The Ninevites repented and worshipped God after Jonah's message, but then they just added Yahweh to a host of other things they worshipped. And even then, he wasn't top priority. What competes with God for your worship? Do you ever feel like sin's hold on you is more powerful than God's freedom? Or that your addictions, your habits, your weaknesses, your lack of self-control feel beyond God? God does have power over that, even if there are times when it doesn't feel like it. Paul House says that Assyria here is a sign of the victory of God and the basis of hope that his power and justice will ultimately conquer all evil. 
It means that God's power and justice still dictate history. And he has evidently attacked that universal sin that we still feel present today. This idea of distorted views of God, it's nothing new. From Babel all the way to the Bible Belt, we can all be guilty of altering or limiting God in our perception of him. And Nahum gives us great pitfalls to watch out for. Chapter 1 shows us that God takes sin seriously and we should not minimize it. In chapter 2 today, what we've seen is that God has the power to deal with sin and the enemy. God has demonstrated his power and ability to pour out his wrath effectively as he promised. And he has promised a final defeat of sin and the devil and of death. To view God as unable to deal with sin is sin, because that, that's not God. God warned Nineveh that his wrath was coming. So too, he has warned us to repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Turn from our sin. And in that, just like the Assyrian, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and just like the Assyrians, their king, that's a tough sentence. <laughs> um, that just like the Assyrians and their king, our enemy is like a lion. And God warns us in 1 Peter 5, 8, to be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be prepared. What he has proclaimed will come to pass. And the enemy is hungry. He tells us that trial and tribulation will be coming. So we shouldn't be caught off guard by the sin in this world or think that God is not far off because it is happening according to his promises. And we know, too, that God has the power to deal with sin and Satan. And so when we see this going on around us and we realize it is according to what he has said, we can find comfort we can find his presence. And two, he gives us a reminder of this to carry with us, to take with us as we go, to look back on and remember. Like the floodwaters that destroyed Nineveh, God, via water, will make a complete end of the adversaries. As he says in chapter 1, verse 8, we see this multiple times in Scripture, most notably with the great flood in the story of Noah or the destroying of the Egyptian army as they attempted to cross the Red Sea and God closed it in on them. And we see it here with the destruction of the Assyrian stronghold at Nineveh with water. We often look at the ordinance of baptism as representative of new life and being washed and cleansed of sin, which is true and great. But that water of baptism... It also represents God completely destroying the adversaries. God has the power to and the action of complete destruction of the sin in our life. And God has put a complete end to the enemy that is prowling around like a roaring lion. This is the remembrance that we have in our baptism. God promises not only to shepherd Assyria with the sword, 
But in that same Micah 5 passage, God promises a ruler who will come from Bethlehem, who is coming forth from of old, from ancient of days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock with the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. God destroys Nineveh to restore the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Right worship. And he destroys sin to restore the majesty of the name of the Lord his God as the majesty of his people. And he will restore that right worship to all people at the end. As Philippians 2, 10 and 11 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that your promises are not without power. We thank you that you are merciful and compassionate, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But Lord, we thank you too that in your character, you by no means clear the guilty because you are just. Lord, we ask that you would build us up as your people and help us to remember our baptism and what it is that you've given us in that as a remembrance. Lord, to help us to rest firm on your promises, knowing that you will fulfill them as you have promised. It is in your name we pray. Amen.